those words and really all the songs we sang this morning uh, fit so beautifully into our passage um, this morning. Uh, thank you, Noah, for your efforts to... Uh, Noah looks at the sermon notes and he really prays and endeavors to lead us in songs that line up with what we will learn in God's Word Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And he sure nailed it this morning. I think as we go through our passage, you'll hopefully you'll remember some of the stanzas that we sung and the themes that were woven in and out this morning that just fit beautifully into our passage. And we are in Revelation chapter 19. We are nearing the end. Uh, I personally have not um, finished preparing all the way to the end. I'm real close. I'm in the last chapter. I think I'm several sermons ahead. And I have maybe one or two more sermons to go. But we are, this is rounding the corner for the end of this this illustrious book. Well, we're in chapter 19 this morning, but in chapter 17 we were introduced to uh, what Revelation would call the, the most, uh, uh, the, the greatest manifestation of evil and wickedness, and that is Babylon the Great, the great prostitute of the world. And Babylon the Great encapsulates all of the, the evil and the wickedness and the abominations and the powers that that become the source and, and, the e of, and the flow of evil in our world. That's Babylon the Great. That's the great prostitution. And it symbolizes all of the great powers and the kingdoms and the empires that come into existence. And they spread uh, evil. Uh, they, they seek power and greed. And they go after the lusts of their own heart. And Babylon the Great, of course, the demonic powers. And Satan is behind all of this flow, all of this evil. And we have seen in our history, the empires, they rise and then they fall. They rise and then they fall. And all of that is embodied in this idea of Babylon the Great. We think about all the wickedness and the evil and it's very, very colorful. It's colorfully uh, portrayed to us in Revelation. But we're not just reading a, a cartoon. We're not just reading words on a page. We are reading about the very world that we live in. This is our existence. This is our world. And we witness these things in our day and time. Uh, we experience these kinds of tragedies. And we are a part of the system. And we are uh, exposed to the great powers of evil that bring all of this wickedness to pass. And Revelation does a great job, I think, at, at, at not just talking about it, but revealing how dangerous and pervasive and deceptive evil is that is in our world. And that's why we're blessed that it doesn't just describe it, but Scripture also exhorts us and encourages us to be careful, to always be on our guard. Because evil is pervasive and it's always lurking around every corner. That's just the very nature of evil. It is, in a sense, ever-present. Always wanting to capture us. Always wanting to find us in a weak moment so that we will become a part of that system. But there's something else that is also ever-present that we're reminded of in Scripture, in Revelation, and that is God. God's help. God's presence is there for us, ready to save, ready to empower us, ready to strengthen us through these times of discouragement or times of temptation. And in the end, the redeemed 
the saints of God will prevail because we are told in Scripture that the gates will not prevail or overcome, uh, that evil will not overcome the church. So the institution that will last through all of the evil and the wickedness, we are a part of that, the church of God. And then in church, in chapter 18, chapter 18 was a dirge. It was like a funeral service, of, if you will, about the fall of Babylon because the fall of this great empire in that day, at least when John wrote Revelation, would have been the Roman Empire. And it was a, an empire of great wealth and riches and all of those people were mourning the loss because not only did they lose the empire, which they really didn't care so much about, what they cared about, what they're mourning the death of is their own idols. Because now they, don't, they can't line their pockets and fill their hearts and satiate their hearts with the, the idols that they lived for, the idols that they loved so much. So it was not just the loss of an empire, but it was the loss of many personal idols. Uh, even the slave trade ceased to be. It was the end of wickedness and a great time of sadness for many as they watched their pleasures flee. They lamented their great loss. And then we turn to this chapter, chapter 19. And it's almost the exact opposite of what we've been reading. Because there's no dirge here. This is not a funeral service. Chapter 19 is the very cheer of heaven. It's an absolute chorus of praise. It's minds that are in love with and enraptured and purified by God that are adoring God and singing their hearts out to the Lord for He is just and true. So this is the cheer of heaven. In chapter 19, I want us to see one thing, uh, two things, and the first thing is the cheer of heaven. Let's look at the first five verses. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice. Of course, after this was all the Babylon stuff. The loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who has corrupted the earth with her immorality, and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, You who fear Him, small and great. And so we have seen what it looks like to worship idols. And now we are seeing what it looks like to worship the one and only true triune God. Though as the world licks its wounds for its great loss of what it thought were the greatest pleasures, we see heaven absolutely enraptured in an attitude of rejoicing celebrating the greatness of their God, celebrating who He is and what He has done. There's nothing to mourn. They're not mourning any kind of loss in heaven because from heaven's perspective, when you're there, there's nothing but gain. 
Every experience is nothing but gain. The loss is all behind them. And so they're exceedingly glad that the wickedness and the suffering that they had experienced and the loss that they experienced in this life is behind them. And it was God's great power that did this. God's great power destroyed the wickedness and destroyed Babylon the Great, the prostitute. So no longer, and that's something to celebrate, no longer will she oppress and torture and spill the blood of the saints. No longer will she suck the life out of people and deceive the people, young and old, in this world. In fact, her smoke goes up forever, it says, which is code for uh, they will burn in hell forever and ever and ever. And heaven is praising God for this. Praising God for His judgments and His actions. And it's, this, it's that natural attitude that is pervasive in heaven. Every creature in heaven holds this kind of thinking in their mind. They hold God and exalt God in very, very high regard. There's nothing to question. There's nothing to wonder about. Here, we, we, we hold back sometimes because life is hard. And it's very hard not to maybe question God's actions. Maybe question God's judgments. Why has this happened to me? Why does my life look the way it does? But when we get to heaven, we see things from God's perspective. And it all makes sense. And it's nothing but one wonderful judgment and one wonderful action after another. Heaven is an exciting place to be. And the connection is because the closer we get to God and the more accurately we know God, the more we will be in agreement with Him and and the more we will be able to clearly see just how majestic and wonderful and just He is. And that's what's taking place in heaven. All of the the cloudiness and the veil that we have to experience here in this earth, it's all been removed. And we get to see God for who He truly is. So there's nothing to question anymore. And the way in this world that we can get to know God is by reading He's revealed Himself and we get to know Him through His Word and then as we walk with Him and as we interact with His Word and it becomes a relationship and experience and we get to know God. And the more we get to know God in this world, the less we will question His actions and the more we will actually embrace them, see the goodness of them, and live lives of praise. God, even though Babylon has not fallen, this is in the future, but God is doing wonderful things in the midst of evil. God is enabling people to overcome sin. He is transforming hearts. He suppresses evil. He holds it back. He promotes His people. He protects His people. He looks after the little sparrows. And He makes sure the little lambs are taken care of. Yes, all of this in the midst of this wicked, evil world. Souls are getting saved. Minds are being enlightened. People are illuminated to the truth of God and embracing it and living for it. See, heaven is being built. Those that will be in heaven as we read about the future, those that will sing the praises that we're talking about this morning are now being harvested and brought in to the kingdom. 
There's just this excitement. There's an incredible excitement in heaven over who God is and what He has done and the fact that they get to be a part of it. It's just overwhelming and exciting. And we just recently experienced uh, one of our cultural pastimes, um, the Super Bowl. You know, and you think about all the hoopla and all the excitement and how people just really get into the Super Bowl. And there's a lot of excitement that follows that. And people go to extreme measures to cheer on their favorite team. I mean, people will cheer on their favorite team until they lose their voice. That's how excited they can go. They are. Uh, people will show their great support to their favorite team by showing up in, in, in sub-zero degree weather uh, with nothing but paint. No shirts, nothing to keep them warm because they're die-hard fans and they want everybody to know how much, how they support their great team. And probably even more of a sacrifice is people will go and they will excitingly pay way too much for a hot dog just to cheer on their team. See, they, there's, there's, an, there's an atmosphere there where there, there's a, a giving there. There's an excitement. And people will even kiss a stranger beside them when a touchdown is scored because they're so excited about their team. That we witness this kind of allurement and excitement here in this world over different things. It's just at a completely different level in heaven. There is that kind of excitement and more in heaven. So as we pray, you know, even as we, we have our times of worship, we're told in Hebrews that we join the saints of heaven. See, we worship God from earth. They worship God, those that went before us from heaven. And there's this big praise service. We are a part of this. So I hope that that informs our hearts and our minds as we stand in His presence and we are led in worship to God. There should be some kind of excitement in our hearts no matter what we're experiencing. We don't want to let the, the, the devil and evil snuff out the good things that God is doing. Because no matter how evil Satan is, what God does is way better and much greater and worthy to celebrate. So I want to point out also that in Scripture, there's something else that goes hand in hand with this kind of praise. We see it here. And that is, uh, we have also the cheering of the eternal smoke. Uh, We have the creatures in heaven cheering the fact that God has judged evil. And even the fact that the evildoers that failed to repent, that, that remained unredeemed and pushed God away and stayed in the state of rebellion and rejected His offers of salvation by faith through grace, they are rejoicing over the fact that that, that mindset and that nature of man, that rebellion is being uh, fiercely judged. And evil is not just... Uh, something that takes place in the spiritual realm, but evil is also embodied in flesh. And so behind the evil things that we read about, behind the evil acts of Babylon the Great, working in in empires, it seems kind of nebulous, it seems out there, it's a spiritual battle, which it is, but it is also fought in physical form, and that is that Satan uses those that are willing to follow him. 
And so they, we can say Satan persecutes the church, but yet it's human hands that grab swords and cut heads off. It's, it's human people that grab torches and burn Christians alive. The evil is embodied uh, physically, but also uh, spiritually and physically. The wages of sin is death. And so the, the realization is that the wicked must die. In order for this to come to an end, it has to happen this way. Justice has to be served sooner or later. Somewhere down the road, people will give an account as we learned this morning. And in order for righteousness to reign, in order for heaven to be a place where there is no sin, sin has to be dealt with. And that means wrath, the wrath of God. But heaven, the creatures in heaven are not shy about celebrating that this in itself is a wonderful, great thing. Because God is a holy God and a just God. You know, it's not hard to imagine dragons and beasts and false prophets and prostitutes, you know, being judged and burning forever and ever and ever as their smoke goes up. We, we can kind of get on board with that. But they're not the only rebellious creatures that will be judged by God. See, man is a rebel at heart. And along with this cheering and along with this judgment, we are talking about uh, human souls. Evil man gladly does Satan's bid. In the previous chapters, we read where God's wrath fell upon mankind. And it was terrible. And yet, it said, man failed to repent. After all the warning that God gave, hearts can be, human hearts can be so cold and callous against their Creator. That even in the midst of losing their lives and their souls for eternity, they clamp down and dig in and refuse to acknowledge God for who He really is. And heaven sees that as an abomination. That is wicked for a creature that was designed to give praise to His Creator to absolutely refuse under any terms to acknowledge His great worth. And so God's wrath falls and heaven cheers this. It's praiseworthy. See, heaven calls, sees, and heaven calls evil for what it is. It's not so clear for us here on earth, is it? Sometimes we get confused. Sometimes we're not so sure. But it's clear in heaven. And it's called out in heaven. Matter of fact, in earth here, uh, we make a pra practice of rather than celebrating God's righteousness, uh, we're becoming a culture that's getting pretty good at celebrating, not tolerating, but celebrating absolute evil and wickedness. As if the, these great, great feats of evil and twisted thinking and philosophies and ways to live and ways to look at and do life, is, they're becoming celebrated. Praised as if it's a great thing. But in heaven, everything's just clear and you see it for what it really is. And so, praise always goes in the right place. 100% pure. Verse 5, from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants. That would be us as well. And by the way, this voice came from the throne. This is big stuff. 
You who fear Him, small and great. It is the duty and great pleasure for God's creatures to be able to praise Him. To think on Him. To, to, uh, to comprehend His, His greatness and His beauty and His royalty and His majesty and the way He works and the way He reveals Himself. And if you know Him, you will know that He does great things in your life. You will know that He does small but great things in your life. He answers those little things when often when we need Him the most. And any prayer that is withheld, it is for our own good and for His glory. And all that will be clear. The things that are so muddled or muddy in our thinking today will be clear and it will be all out exaltation and praise. And it appears that God is giving us an opportunity here on earth as we gather Sunday after Sunday to corporately sing His praise to practice and practice. And I hope we're getting better at it because it looks like we're going to be doing it for a long, long time. And it's going to be loud. Everything in heaven is loud. So we see here in this passage just the tremendous cheer of heaven. And secondly, we see the marriage of the Lamb. Let's read verses 6 through, ten, through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. When I read this passage, I can't help but to remember what Miss Pat Ray used to always say. And that is, God loves a good wedding. Whenever there was a wedding in the making, Miss Pat was sure to say, God loves a good wedding. And she is absolutely right. And we find here the glorious union between Christ and His blood-bought bride. The people of God. Some of which, many of which, are here this morning. And this idea of the wedding feast between the Lamb and His bride is a theme that just builds and builds and builds in Scripture. It runs very, very deeply and it's it's worth our, some time and our consideration. And oddly enough, the prostitute and the idea of prostitution, though the prostitute wasn't, didn't make it to the wedding and was not present here, and yet all that takes place with the prostitute helps us understand the great worth and value of what's taking place here in this wedding or how glorious it really is. Because the prostitute only represents all that is wrong. All that is broken. All that is evil. Every worst possible 
scenario and, and even what can go wrong with God's people. There are Old Testament passages where God addresses His covenant people uh, as His, not just as followers, but as His bride. God has a view of His blood-bought people, those that He has pledged Himself to and promised Himself to. They're, they're, they're more than just His people. They are His, his beloved, His bride. And so when in the Old Testament as people committed adultery when they forsook Him, when they didn't obey Him, and then some even worshipped other gods, He looked at that as adultery. And that's a term reserved for marriage. But He used that term because He views His relationship with His people as a marriage, as a union. And He would accuse them of basically cheating on Him in very illustrious terms. You've cheated on Me. You've, you've prostituted yourself out. You're sleeping with other gods. Because this is something that was very dear to him. You're not being loyal in this relationship. You're not being loving. Therefore, it's spiritual adultery. And I think in order to understand the, the uh, magnitude of the marriage supper of the Lamb, we have to consider that w- what God is doing when He uses this kind of terminology with His people. See, God is many, many things. He reveals Himself as many things. He's, he's their King. Uh, he's their Deliverer. Uh, he's their Law Giver. Their Ruler. Uh, he's their Protector. He's their Provider. He's their Standard of Righteousness. He's many, many things. But when He uses this language, He's also communicating to them that I am in a relationship with you as your husband. And I want you to, along with these other wonderful revelations of my character, view your walk or your relationship with me in these terms. Because all of those characteristics and positions of of royalty and majesty, they have a place and we need those to understand God properly. But we also need this other terminology understand properly the relationship that we have gotten ourselves into when we pledge ourselves to Jesus Christ. He wants us to know that we are in a marriage-like relationship. And therefore, He relates to us in those terms. And we are to relate to Him in those terms in a spiritual level. So we think about this kind of relationship. It's not just, we're not just rule followers. We're not just rule keepers. We are in an intimate, exclusive, loving, loyal relationship with the living God. That's how He views it. There's beauty in having God as our King and a wonderful shepherd and a wonderful leader. We long for that and we need that. But it goes to a deeper level of also fulfilling the very intimate places of our hearts and our minds. Every need that we would have. So when you get married, you will know pretty quickly that it affects every part of your being. It affects all of your existence. This thing called marriage. This covenant relationship. Because now you can't look at anything in the world. You can't even look at yourself the same way 
without bringing into it this idea that I am in a special relationship, a very unique, exclusive relationship with this other person. Share everything. You're, you're accountable to each other in every way. And every time something happens, you're constantly evaluating yourself in relation to where do I stand relationally with this person? That's how you spend your days, whether you always realize it or not. But you're always wondering, and you might not think about it if things are going well. You might not even think about how are we relating to one another. But if you say something cutting, or if there's some kind of argument, or fighting, or bickering that goes on, your mind is consumed with, where do I stand? Where is our relationship in this? So it's this all-consuming kind of relationship. And it's with our spouse that we're the most vulnerable. It's with our spouse that we share everything, our, our money, our time, our space, our dreams, our vulnerabilities, our falls, all of these fears that we have. It's all shared with this one person. And we often tell them more things than we would tell anybody else because we're just in the same, not just in the same house, we're in the same little bubble of life where we share and do in, to some extent everything together. And you even can see each other naked of all things. That's vulnerable. That's intimate. And that's real. And that's true. And that's marriage relationship. If you've entered into a legal covenant, and under God, that legal, coven, legal covenant, covenant is a promise where you're saying, even when my emotions, and I'm on cloud nine right now, but if I ever get on cloud one, whatever that looks like, I'm still committed to you. And we're in this together. And because we're in this together, well, no matter what just happened, we've got to put our best foot forward. And put our best foot forward and work this thing out because we're in it together. And it's this whole idea of togetherness. And you have to have togetherness because everything you do affects the other person in one way or another. You just can't. No more solo. No more lone ranger. No more desperado out on the range by yourself. Everything you do and think, all of your actions will affect your spouse in some kind of way. And so you're in this relationship that's it's a promise that even when I don't feel this way about you, I am here to stay. And it's that kind of commitment and promise and covenant that helps us continue in our relationship and not fear that around every corner, every time I say the wrong thing or make a mistake, up oh, there goes that relationship, I better look for another one. Now that's the world we live in. And you know that there are a lot of people today that feel the freedom to live with each other and they are committed uh, limit, you know, they have limited commitments. Uh, we'll share the bills, you know, I'll help you pay this and I'll do the dishes and they have this kind of relationship but they won't get married because their hearts are not looking at a relationship that it's through thick or thin. It's like it, it's until I'm finished with you kind of relationship. Why would I want to make that legal? I don't want any kind of commitment in that sense. And yet biblical marriage says, no, this, the two shall become one. You are glued together. You're stuck. So, it just makes sense that you would make the best of it. Because it is your choice and you can make these kind of decisions. Just like we can make decisions to do wrong and say mean things and hurtful things, guess what? We can actually make the decision to not do that, but rather encourage one another and say things that build 
one another up. So that's how covenant marriage is designed. The point of all this is that this is the kind of relationship we learn that God intended all the time with His people. He intended, He designed us, literally designed our hearts, our minds, our bodies, the the person that we are, to long for and yearn and be fulfilled in this kind of relationship with God Almighty. This holy, just God that punishes evil loves you and desires you and draws you in to this incredible, committed, adoring relationship. And here it is right in Scripture. Who would have ever thought that God had that kind of tender side to him because he seems so fierce all the time. And that he's so detailed and he's so attentive. And it's this perspective that helps us understand of all things the nature of sin. And now we know why God hates it. It's not just that we did a wrong thing. It's that we defiled Him. It's that we were disloyal. We broke a covenant with Him. We did not hold Him in the highest of esteem. We cheated on Him. He looks at our sin as if we have broke a marriage covenant. And He calls it spiritual adultery. And all of this has to play a part in our understanding of our everyday discipleship, of our everyday understanding of what it means to relate to God, what it means to give ourselves to God and, and to commit to God because it just puts everything up on a higher level than we ever imagined it would be on. The marriage, it's that place where ideally two people, even in the midst of a broken world, even in the midst of flawed, broken hearts, two people can actually be safe and well cared for and share things and build a glorious life and relationship with each other by obeying the commands of God and by looking at one another as God would have us to look at one another and forgive one another. And it's this understanding, love covers a multitude of, of sins. This is how God wants to be seen. This is how God wants to be known when we wake up in the morning. We talked a little bit about this in Sunday school. It's uh, Jesus said, get away from me, I don't know you. That's a relationship term. You're not my spouse. We're not in any kind of saving relationship. You can't come into my house as my bride. I don't know you in that way. Now they, they're, 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 we're not just rule keepers. See, some of those people did extraordinary things that we would say, wow, that was a spiritual advancement or achievement. We're not just rule keepers, it's a relationship. I like in the Old Testament, just a very few verses about Enoch, and it says, He walked with God. That has always captured me and captivated me. It didn't say he obeyed all God's rules. Because it's not just about obeying God's rules. It's about that loving relationship. You've got to have rules in order to have any kind of relationship, right? Or other you're going to be offending each other all the time. Wait a minute, you can't do that. Why? Well, it's a rule in our relationship. It breaks it. You've got to have rules. But it's not just following rules. It's not just the obedience. We are, we are obeying God because we love Him for who He is. And we agree that all His ways are right and true. 
He wants to be our shepherd. He wants to be our king. He is our warrior. And he is our life giver. And he wants to be our supreme love. So that there is absolutely nothing else that we love more than God. As an illustration, let's just say a husband is habitually late for work. And he's late for work because after work he's going out to dinner with, say, his secretary. And he's sharing his heart with her. And he's pouring out uh, intimate secrets with her. And having this kind of relationship with her. And he comes home and his wife wants to know why, why you're late. And so he tells her. And she's mad. Now he didn't come home and rip up the marriage certificate. He's still helping pay the bills. She still has his name, but she's mad. Why? Because the relationship is missing. He is betraying her relationally. And they're supposed to be one. And there's a level of marriage that is intimate and exclusive. You don't share your heart with just anybody and anybody, everybody anymore. You give and give and give and give yourself to your spouse. And that's what makes your marriage so strong. In our relationship with God. He gives and gives and gives Himself to us. He never stops giving Himself to us. Throughout our entire lives. And so He brings us to new heights each time. How do we know what we love the most? How do we know what we have held the dearest or hold dearest in our hearts? Well, there's been several different ways to look at this and I'll just kind of conclude with this. Uh, Archbishop, I'll, I'll share two ways. There's a lot of different ways to say it, but Archbishop William Temple says that if you really want to know uh, who your God is, you really want to know what you long for and, and what you love, then w- discover what you do with your solitude. And what he means by your solitude is that There's times when you have to give your mind to things. You're at work. You're supposed to be thinking about this. Or, you know, you're cutting wood. You've got to think about what you're doing so a tree doesn't fall on you. You're driving. You have to think of... There's things where you have to give your mind. But there's also times in our lives where we don't have to give our minds to anything. There's those times where we can sit out on the front porch and just stare at the grass or stare into the trees or watch them and let our minds go free. And his question would be, when you let your mind go free and you don't have to think about anything, what comes into your mind? What do you find that, that, that you are consumed with? What do you find that your mind enjoys, actually can't wait to think about when it has some free time? He says it's very possible that whatever that is, you're giving your mind to it and that may be your love and that may be your God. Of course, Jesus also gives us a test and he says where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. And he talks about money. What are you investing your time in? What are you? So when we have, again, we, we do this with our thoughts, but we do this tangibly with our money. We have to pay our bills. We've got to put this money goes here and this money scrolled away from here and I've got to pay this because I bought my, and all this stuff. But what do you do when you actually have excess or spare or you've saved it? What are you saving it for? Because it's the things where you don't have to spend your money on that we often spend our money on just because that's what we want. That's what we love. That is our treasure of life. 
So those are two ways that, that kind of help us indicate where our hearts really are. When we wake up in the morning, how consumed are we with God? Or throughout the day, how much does an awareness of God play a part in everything that we do? We, we can multitask and think about other things, but at the same time, God is right there. I'm going to do something a certain way because I know how God thinks about it. I know what God feels about it. Or I'm going to avoid certain things throughout the day because I'm in this relationship with God. And what do I do with my money? Where do I think that it's going to serve me the best? Am I investing my time and my resources into my relationship with God? Do I put my money into my relationship? Am I investing in God's kingdom and in His goodness and in His ways? You see, those are ways that can tell us what is in our heart. And the whole idea is that sin is not just breaking rules. In a sense, it's breaking a heart. In a sense, it's loving other things other than God or loving other things more than God. And it, it's like trampling over Him. It's being disloyal to Him. See, the things that the prostitute offers to the world are fatal attractions. They're just all fatal attractions. They are purposed, purposeful snares to trip us up, to kill, maim, and destroy. Have every intention to lead us to our deaths in some way, to separate, to break, to destroy. God is just the opposite. Everything that He brings into our lives is to build us up, is to cause us to be tighter and tighter and tighter until we are absolutely inseparable. So you see, that's why we need the Lamb. And it comes back around to the marriage supper of the Lamb. See, we need a Lamb. What does that represent? That represents the sacrifice that our groom had to offer. You realize that the sacrifice of the Lamb had to take place in order to turn us from prostitutes to pure brides. Without the blood of Christ, we would all still be in that state of unloyal, cheating prostitutes. But because Christ gave Himself so lovingly to us, did not hold back even His own life and blood, but freely gave Him up for us all, then we can be among the creatures in heaven singing His praise because He has purified our hearts. There's an intriguing passage, I think, um, in Matthew 9 that reveals to us that Jesus kind of kept this idea of uh, the wedding feast in mind as He ministered on earth. In Matthew 9, 14 and 15, the disciples of John came to Him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Like, that's out of nowhere. What's that got to do with fasting? Seemingly out of nowhere, where is Jesus' mind? He realizes what's going on in the big scheme of things. He gets to spend time with His people, with His bride. 
And there's this little celebration. It's a pre-celebration before the big celebration. That's how he sees it. I'm setting my people free. I'm going to give myself so that I will have a spouse in heaven. I think that's very telling of him there. So in order for his bride to be joyful and filled with love, he has to drink that cup of wrath that we've been reading about in Revelation. And he drinks it all and he takes it all on our behalf. And then we're left with verses like this in Isaiah 62. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate but you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married for the Lord he delights in you and your land shall be married for as a young man marries a young woman so shall your sons marry you and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride so shall your God rejoice over you and in Ezekiel 16 when I passed by you again and saw you behold you were at the age for love And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. All of this is wrapped up into these final passages of the wedding feast. And then to close it, the angel said, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. What's the invitation? It's not beautiful printed stationery. The invitation to this wedding feast is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the invitation. If you want to be in heaven and rejoice and cheer on the one and only true God, the invitation to that is the gospel. And that is to repent from your sins and by faith believe in Christ and the sacrifice that He made so that we can be forgiven of our sins. It's an exchange of the punishment we deserve that Christ is willing to take so that He gives us the clothes of heaven which is the righteousness of Christ. That's the only way we can get into this feast. And that's what happens when we accept the gospel of Jesus Christ as good news and repent of our sins and commit our lives to Him. We receive His righteousness Nothing man-made will get us into this feast. It is only what Christ has accomplished. So, that's the invitation. The gospel has gone out. Have you believed in it? Have you responded to it? Have you given your heart to this one that has given himself to you and created you for this kind of intimate relationship? As Timothy Keller would say, he awaits your RSVP to his invitation. May God bless the preaching of his word.